Mowage. <laughs> Mowage is what brings us together today. I was told I had to do that. I'm glad you laughed because I was really nervous that that was going to be really dumb. Hey, we're continuing our series major late. Before we jump into today's topic, I want to say two things really quick. Number one, uh, next week is our Discover Lunch. We do this about once a quarter. If you have never been, uh, we highly encourage you to do so. In fact, we would say you are doing yourself a disservice not to come. What we don't want for you is for you to give, join a group, start serving, get really connected, and then find out a year from now, two years from now, we say something, we do something, we believe something, and you say, why did nobody ever tell me? And so this is, we just want to be fully transparent of who we are as a church, and so that you can decide if this is the church that God has for you. And so that's next service. We'll order some pizza. We'll be in the auditorium. It is a super laid back thing. And so whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or you're not even sure about this Jesus thing and you like, do churches even do anything other than Sundays? We invite you to come uh, to learn more about us. And the second thing I want to say is this. Next week, we are concluding our series, Made to Relate. So we've talked about singleness and friendship. Today is marriage. Uh, next week is divorce. Now, I, I know when, when you say that, when I hear that, there's a lot of things that come to your mind, particularly if you've been impacted by divorce, or if you have been divorced, there's probably some anxiety, um, some nervousness. Let me just say this. You probably are not going to hear what you think you are going to hear. And, and let me say this also. Romans 8 one says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we want to encourage you, and I think uh, we'll really go to Jesus next week. And so listen, I know it might be really hard for you. Like, I'm not sure if I want to come. I encourage you to be here, and we'd love to love you well um, through that. Uh, so today is marriage. I want to start with a, a few kind of jokes that I found that were funny and see if you can relate to this if you are married or have been married. The first one goes like this. A man tells his doctor that he's incapable of doing all the things around the house that he used to do. Uh, and uh, when the examination is over, he says, okay, doctor, in plain English, tell me what's wrong with me. The doctor looks at him and says, well, you're just lazy. The man nods and says, okay, now give me the medical term so I can tell my wife. <laughs> During a heartfelt chat with her friend about relationships, my wife sighed and said, you know, if something happened to Lloyd, I don't think I could ever marry again. Her friend nodded sympathetically. I know what you mean, she said. Once is enough. <laughs> Or this last one, a guy goes to the grocery store to get groceries, and he's going to the checkout line. The cashier says, paper or plastic? He says, I'd like double bag paper, and I'd like you to make each bag as heavy as possible. Cashier says, okay. He then says, in case you're wondering, I had a fight with my wife, and it's my turn to pick up the groceries. He's like, cool, don't, okay. And then he said, it's also her turn to unload the car. Now, um, that's not what we want in, in marriage, and you might be able to relate to some of those. The question today we're looking at is this. What does it take to have a good marriage? What does it take for those things to not be true, most of the time, at least, in your marriage? What does Scripture model for us and say? What does it look like for a husband and wife to love each other in such a way that can bring flourishing, not just to them, but to those around them? What does it actually take to have a good marriage. Now, uh, we're going to be in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, there's a black one somewhere around you, and you can take one of those homes. If you don't have one, it's our gift to you 
or of course you can read along in your phone. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, you might hear this at wedding ceremonies and various things. And, and what I know is if you're familiar with the text, it also can be a little confusing. And so we're going to do our best to try to understand it. Now, the context for Ephesians 5, you have the Apostle Paul, one of the foundational leaders of the early church. And in Ephesians 5, the first part of Ephesians 5, he's talking about walking in love and doing for others what Christ has done for us. He talks about honoring others sexually. He talks about speaking well of honors and how you talk about them. He's talking about, he talks about honoring God in your lives. And his point is he's encouraging us to love the way that Jesus loved. And then he continues by saying this in verse 20. Here's how we do this. He says, giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. In other words, as Paul is going to get to marriage in a second, what he's doing here is he is describing a life where in honor of and in the way of Jesus, you live in such a way where you honor others as greater than yourself. And his point is that even Jesus, who actually is greater than all of us because he is God, lived in a way where he laid down his life for other people. And now Paul is going to give some practical examples of what this can actually look like. And he's going to start with marriage and how marriage can also reflect what Jesus does for us. And then he says this in verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. And look at the time. I think we're going to end early today at New City Church. <laughs> um, no. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Um, Paul here, uh, his first example of general submission that he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, where he talks about loving and laying down your life in, in, in a, uh, an emulation of Jesus. The first example he's going to give is the ordering of the marriage relationship. Now, I want to point out two things before we understand what's going on here. Number one, he does not tell wives to obey their husbands as if they were children or slaves. So in Ephesians 6, he's going to talk about parent-child relationship and even the slaves relationship because slavery was a big thing in that culture. So he's not going to tell them to, like a parent, the child to a parent, you just do whatever your husband says. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, does he tell women in general to obey men in general? That's not what he says. And he doesn't say that because in Genesis chapter 1, we're going to get into that in a couple of weeks. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created both male and female in his image. And in Galatians chapter 3, another book of the Bible that Paul writes, he says that there is no slave nor free, no Greek, nor Gentile, no male nor female. What he's talking about is that when it comes to our salvation in Christ, all these distinctions that we have and that play out differently in our lives do not matter, that we are all equal playing field, that God loves all of us equally. And so the submission here is a deference to the leadership of the husband for the health of the marriage and the family relationship. Now, we'll get to the husbands in just a second. But I want to say, just help us understand what's happening here to understand the context in which Paul is writing. Uh, he is writing in a, to a culture where most women were a couple of years to not even a decade plus or to even a decade plus younger than their husbands. So typically they're younger, if not a good deal younger. And everything legally ran through the man. Now, even in our culture until semi-recently, this is how it operated. Like women couldn't get credit cards. They couldn't vote. They couldn't get a loan without a husband or a brother or a father or someone like that. I'm not saying that that is right or good. But that was the reality of the ancient world and even the modern world until the last hundred plus years. 
And so, again, he's talking to men who are typically older, had more life experience, and were culturally, whether or not we agree with it or not, it's just culturally in the ancient world, men were in charge. So legally, the finances, uh, inheritance, land rights, everything went through the man. And so he's encouraging wives to love their husbands. Now, the question is, how does this, what does this practically look like? Because if we're being honest, uh, these verses, of course, sound very off-putting to us and our culture today. What's interesting is that these verses also sounded very off-putting to the original audience, but for a different reason. You see, in the first century, the cultural assumption was that women did whatever their husbands told them to do. It was a very patriarchal society. Uh, husbands, again, were older, generally could do whatever they wanted. Women could not really get a divorce. Uh, men, it was kind of culturally a, a, a cultural practice and accepted that men could go outside the marriage for their sexual needs if they wanted to. They could do all these things, and the women really could not do anything about it. Yet Paul here is saying that you don't follow your husband just because he is your husband, which would have been a radical idea. Of course, you do whatever your husband says because he's in charge. But rather, you love, care for, and you respect your husband as he loves, cares for, and serves you as he follows the Lord, which we'll get to at a second. But the point that Paul is making here is that you don't just do whatever your husband tells you to do because he is your husband that you follow him as you do to the Lord. If the, that if he tells you or makes you do something that's uncomfortable or unloving or something that God would not have you to do, you don't have to do it just because it's your husband. And in the first century, that was a radical idea. Now, let's keep reading. We'll, we'll touch more on this in a second. To keep reading to see, to get a more of an idea of what Paul is getting at here. He then says this, husbands in verse 25, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so here, Paul is commanding husbands to give up his life or to give up his desires or what he wants for his wife and, of course, his children as well. In other words, what he is saying is that husbands should live in a way that honors her, that supports her, that wants good things for her. Now, again, this, this to us, we're like, well, yeah, that sounds good. In the ancient culture, this was a radical concept because men did not need to, nor did they have to do this. And most would have thought this was crazy. Most of the average man would have thought this is crazy that I like lay down my desires for her. Like she's the one that's supposed to raise my kids and keep my house in order while I'm doing all these other things. Again, the thought in the ancient world was that men were just better than women. At least that's what men thought. Men were better than women, that women existed to serve. And not that, and hear me, it's not that the all marriage relationships, they didn't love and care for each other. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying generally speaking, uh, uh, men, uh, women exist to do things for men. Men did not exist to do things for women, right? Women, again, couldn't really divorce their husbands if there was anything going on. Yet men, Paul tells men, this is how you, in this culture where you can do whatever you wanted, really, this is how you are to relate to your wife. That like Christ, to have the position of authority, just like men did in the ancient world, they had the position of authority, you, yet you use that position to serve and love and put the needs of others, your wife and your children, above yourself. Again, he says this in verse 25, we'll keep reading. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And then in verse 26, he's going to talk about what Christ did for the church. Here's what Jesus did to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He, Jesus, did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. 
In other words, what Paul is talking about here is what Christ does. That husbands, of course, they don't sanctify and cleanse their wives and save them from their sins. Uh, That's what Jesus did. Jesus loved the church and he gave himself up for the church for those who would follow him. And so in the same way, husbands are supposed to do that. And so he says this in verse 28. Here's what this looks like in the same way. Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. In other words, I think what Paul is getting at here is that the proper way for a husband to lead his wife, because that's a typical question, particularly in Christian circles, like, what does it mean, lead my wife? Is is that actually still applicable today? I would say the proper way to lead his wife is to do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He put the needs of others above his own. In other words, the role of the husband is to reflect Christ's love for his church. And we see in Ephesians chapter 5, at least, how Paul is defining it in context, that leading is defined by love and sacrifice. Because that's what Jesus did. It is not domineering. It is not manipulative. But following the example of Jesus, it is about caring for the good of your wife over the good of yourself. It means that regardless of what your wife may say or do, that you are still to care for her even if it doesn't seem fair. That Jesus treats us unfairly and that he gives us the grace and love that we don't deserve. And to lead your wife well means that you desire her good above, her good above your own. Or really, I think what Paul is showing us is he's talking about how men and women are to love and care for each other, at least in the context of marriage. I think you could define it this way. That a good marriage requires two people to honor one another. A good marriage requires both people to love and care for and want to serve their spouse. Now, again, both the husband and wife have to view themselves as better than themselves. Both the husband and wife have to participate in this, or things can go sideways really quickly. Think of it like this. Um, Cats and dogs. If you have a dog, even if you don't have a dog, what a do- dogs exist because they think you're amazing. They love you. They care for you. Uh, I like to go walk, walk around walks in our neighborhood, and this person has a sign in their yard. It's like, be as good as your dog thinks you are, right? They just, you come home from a long day, their tail's waggling. They're like, they love you no matter what. And then you have a cat, and according to cats, you exist for them. Right? You feed them, you pet them until they don't want to be pet anymore, you pay attention to them until they're done, uh, you play with them until they don't want to play with you, and if they're hungry and it's 3 a.m., you're going to know about it. Feed me now. In fact, you know the difference is like this. When, the cat, when a cat sits on your lap, what's the rule? You don't have to get up. Right, so we have a cat named Moses. He's pretty friendly, and literally this week, Christina was like working on this thing that was pretty important. The kids were in bed, we were sitting on the couch, and Moses, our cat, came up on my lap, curled up, and went to sleep. And our, one of our son, Roman, our four-year-old, starts crying. And Christina's like, Roman's crying. Can you deal with it? And I look at her, and I look at my lap, and I said, I don't make the rules. I can't. Like, he loves me right now. I don't know how long this is going to last, right? So I, she had to go up because the cat was loving me, right? So the point, here's the point, is you want to be, you need two dogs, okay? You, if it's just the husband caring for the wife, then you're going to have problems. If it's just the wife loving and serving and caring for a husband who's taking advantage of her, then you're going to have problems. I read this this week by Anne Lamott. Uh, She's an author, and I thought this was really great. She says it this way. A good marriage is one in which each spouse secretly thinks that he or she got 
the better deal. A good marriage is where each spouse secretly thinks he or she got the better deal. If that is your posture, then you're probably going to serve. So again, this view of marriage that Paul is writing about will have problems if one spouse does not attempt to pursue this. Now, I want to say this. Practically speaking, uh, you see nothing here about a checklist of how leadership functions or how the wife's supposed to do or the man's supposed to do. You don't say, like, wives, this is X, Y, and Z. Here's what you need to do. Husbands, here's A, B, C. Here's what you need to do. Now, why doesn't it do that? Well, we talk about this often at New City Church, that scripture you have to remember is wisdom or meditation literature. It is not. So what we do is we read it multiple times. We reflect. We, we, pray, we pray. And then we do our best to apply it to our current cultural moment. It is not how we often view it or think of it as a reference book where like each verse is its own bullet point. When we do that, we take it out of the story and we sometimes can make scripture say things it's not actually saying. It's wisdom literature that you have to apply. So let me give you an example. Alistair Roberts, who is a biblical scholar, he describes it this way. He says this, wisdom literature can often present seemingly contradictory principles. This isn't a denial of logic, but of rigid rule following. You need to be an attentive observer of reality, able to recognize the right principle for the right occasion. So let me, like, practically speaking, let's say, I mean, you could do the husband or wife. Let's just use the husband example. Let's say he's had a long week, work, problems going on, whatever, and it comes to the weekend, and his wife's like, you know, she's like, I want to love you, I want to serve you. Because you've had a hard week, because of things going on in her life, I want you to take the day to go and do whatever you want. Maybe that's the wisdom there, that she wants to serve her husband in that way. Let's say another couple, the same thing happens. The husband has a long week. He's been gone. He's been doing all these things. Friday night comes, and he says, you know what? Because I've been gone, because I've been doing all these things, and you've been doing the kids and your job and everything around the house, I want you to take a day. So that seems like two different things, but based on your context, what's going on, all these various things, the wisdom might look different for different people in different seasons. In other words, if I could apply what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, how this marriage relationship plays out practically will look different from culture to culture and context to context. This isn't like the husbands control the budget and the wife does the dishes. Or the husband, you know, does this chore and the wife has to do this chore. Or who makes more money? It's, it's none of those things. What this is, is that the husband desires the good of his wife and, of course, his family, if they have kids, over his own. And one of the ways he leads is by living this out. In other words, if people ask the question, what does this leadership look like? I think at least in Ephesians chapter 5, here's what I think Paul is saying. That a husband leads by loving like Jesus. A husband leads by loving like Jesus. Now, of course, we all fall short in this area. Uh, men, you will not always, you know, want the good of your spouse. I'm, that's not always going to happen. But, but the desire that Paul is trying to get across is that we should orient our hearts and our souls around this desire. That we should see our wives, if you're married men, as better than yourself. And so I would just say practically, men, if you're married here, what does this look like? Um, where is the first area that comes to mind where you know this isn't happening? So if you're married, where is the first area in your, in your thing that comes to your mind where you know, hey, I'm not loving my spouse like Jesus, right? So I'll give you a practical uh, example for us right now uh, that Christina and I have been talking about and been working through slower than she would like, um, that I can be quick to uh, criticize and slow to encourage my wife. And I'm talking about now, not five years ago. That right now, this is an area in our marriage where I am not always loving like Jesus. That's a practical place where I'm not loving like Jesus. I can be quick to, quick to criticize and slow to encourage. 
So, man, again, if you're married, what, is there an area in your, in your, like, yeah, this is an area where I'm not loving like Jesus. Now, what's interesting is, of course, wives honoring, respecting, following their husbands on its own sounds oppressive. Of course it does. But you know what also is oppressive? Husbands putting their needs above their own can seem oppressive. Like our culture is everything should be equal, 50-50. But yet what Paul is saying is that men and women, it's not just about what you want. It's about considering your spouse over yourself. And when a husband and wife relate to each other in this way, when they love each other in this way, here's what happens. It's an example of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. In fact, uh, Paul continues by saying this, if you keep reading in verse 31. He says, for this reason, so that the husband and wife love, serve, care for one another. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Then he continues by saying something interesting. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Now, uh, when we hear the word mystery here, when he talks about this mystery is profound, how the husband and wife relate to one another and how it applies to Jesus, um, it's from the Greek word mysterion. Now, a mystery in our cultural context, we hear mystery and we think it's something that, that cannot be figured out. It's a mystery. We're not sure how it happened. It's like the secret that nobody knows. Uh, when the biblical writers used it and in the ancient world, most often it was used to describe a secret that is meant to be discovered and understood. So it's something that people didn't know, but now they do know, and we should tell them about it, that it is actually understandable. In other words, this isn't meant to be, a, meant to be like a secret that only a few people can know how husband and wife marriage relates to Jesus and the church, but rather, it is a great truth that God is revealing through his spirit, and it's been revealed with the coming of Jesus, that this hidden plan of God has come to its fulfillment in Jesus, that God's salvation has come to its fulfillment in Jesus, and marriage can reflect what this is supposed to look like. So let me put it this way. Let me track with me just for a minute. It might be a little bit confusing, but it'll make sense in a second. This is why. In Ephesians 5, he applies this really rich term, mysterion, surprisingly, the secret of the gospel to marriage. In fact, in verse 31, it's a quote from Genesis 2. It's the account of the first marriage. So in, in verse 31, when he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's referring to Jesus. And then he, and then he writes that this is a mystery. Well, how does marriage reveal God's plan of salvation? What is the mystery there? Well, again, he talks about, says this in verse 32, I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, again, this is a reference to how he started. So in verse 25, he starts by saying this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In other words, long story short, here's what's happening. The secret is that husbands should do for their wives what Jesus did to us to bring us into a relationship with himself. And the secret of what marriage is about and how we should operate in marriage is found in what Jesus did. When we emulate Jesus, that is when marriages are healthy and they reflect the gospel. And so the core question, of course, for us is what did Jesus do? Well, ultimately, he gave himself for us. Authority greater than all of us came in the form of a man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Though Jesus was equal and was and is God, Philippians 2 shows us what Jesus did. Philippians 2 says this. It'll be on the screen. It says, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. 
assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had came as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So why did Jesus come? Why did he do this? He did this so that ultimately he could take on our nature, that he would give up his glory and the power and become a servant. He put away, he put his own interests and desires uh, below our needs and his sacrifice made it possible for us to be brought into a right relationship with him. That the God of the universe would come and live the perfect life we could not live, die the death we deserve so that anyone who would trust and follow him can experience the grace and mercy of God, not because you earned it or because you're awesome, but because he loves you. That's why he came. And this, according to Paul, is the key to not only understanding marriage, but to properly living it. This is why he is able to tie the original statement about marriage in Genesis chapter 2 to Jesus and the church. Because we are supposed to operate in our marriages like Jesus did toward us. Now, what's interesting here, I want to point out, this does not mean, however, uh, that marriage is just inherently oppressive. Right? As if it's like not doing anything you ever like or enjoy to make sure like you're serving your spouse all the time. As like a butler for your spouse or a servant for your spouse. That is interestingly not how the relationship between God the Father and God the Son operated. Right? So again, remember in Philippians 2, we just read that Jesus did not count his equality with God as something to be exploited, but his greatness was revealed in his humility and his willingness to become the Father's servant to save humanity. So Jesus gives himself up and he went to the cross, but then look what God the Father does in response to what Jesus has done. It says this, if you keep reading in Philippians in verse 9. It says, for this reason, the reason that Jesus came and laid down his life, for this reason, God highly exalted him, which is Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that in the end, either out of obligation or out of willing joy, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And so what's happening here is that this is quite amazing. That you see God the Father and God the Son loving and serving and building one another up. Biblical scholar Robert Leatham puts it this way. He says, this shows what God is like. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do not manipulate each other for their own ends. There is no conquest of unity by diversity or diversity by unity. The three, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, are one, and the one is three. And I think, again, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is showing us is that even on earth, Jesus did not use his power over people, over humanity, over creation to oppress, but sacrificed everything for us so that we might be brought into union with God. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller puts it this way, and this, what Jesus has done for us, takes us beyond the philosophical to the personal and practical. If God had the gospel of Jesus' salvation in mind when he established marriage, then marriage only works to the degree that it approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. Right, so, so here's what this means for us. You may be sitting here and be like, well, this sounds interesting. I love this idea of like loving and serving and caring for one another. But what does it mean for me? Or where do I even start? 
Well, here's, I, here's, if I could just say this in a statement, here's, I think, practically speaking, where we should start. I think this, to sum up, is what Paul is essentially saying about marriage in Ephesians 5, and that's this, that you and I should do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus, that you should do for yourself what God did for you in Jesus, and the rest will follow. Now, if you remember for a long time, uh, especially when I was a kid, the what would Jesus do wristbands were really popular. And the point was to, like, get you in that mindset. But at the same time, like, it's kind of intimidating because you're like, well, I don't know what he would do. What would he do here? I, I don't know. It's like, I think a better way of phrasing it is this way. Here's how I like to put it. If you're in a situation you're not sure what to do, particularly if we're talking about marriage, but this can apply anywhere, so think of it this way. To the best of my knowledge and ability... What would Jesus do if he were me? To the best of my knowledge and ability, what do I think Jesus would do if he were me? Now, here's the thing. You might get that answer wrong. What you decide to do might not be what Jesus would have actually done. But at the end of the day, what does God ask us to do? Love God and love others. I put another way, to consider the Lord in everything that you do. If you do that, but you make the quote-unquote wrong decision, I would argue you are still honoring God because you have desired to do to the best of your knowledge and ability what he would do. So think about if you're married, it's the spots in your marriage where it might be difficult or hard right now. What do you think Jesus would do? How would he react to the best of your knowledge ability if he were you? See, marriage is not about denying all of your interests for the good of the family, which is traditional marriage. It's all about just sacrifice 100%. Nor, would I say, is it about pursuing your interests for the fulfillment of yourself, which is kind of like contemporary marriage. That's like, we do all these things. Oh, I've got the house, the job, things. Oh, I've got the spouse now. It's not about doing your own thing. But instead, again, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, I love how Tim Keller puts it. He puts it this way. The Christian teaching on marriage does not offer a choice between fulfillment only and sacrifice only, but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. Jesus gave himself up. He died to himself to save us and make us his. And now we give ourselves up for one another. And when we do that in marriage, it reflects to those around us what Jesus has done for us. Now, here's the thing. You can certainly try and live this sacrifice for each other without being a Christian. Like you can, you can do that, absolutely, to try to love and serve your spouse, and it happens all the time. But to do so is to miss the point and the power that a healthy Christian marriage is a representation of how Jesus loved us, that he covenanted, covenanted with us, that even when we fall short, even when we make the wrong decisions, he does not turn away from us because he has promised to be there. Again, do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus, that he loved you and he cared for you and he forgave you, gave, forgave you and he gave you grace. Now, to close, I just want to say some, a couple of practical things, because I know this is like, sounds good. What would Jesus do if you were me? I think about that. As I close, we've done this every week. Just a couple of practical things if you're married of how you might want to live this out, of how Jesus might, you know, act and reflect to us. Um, there's a couple of things. Number one, um, never talk never negatively about your spouse to your friends. So one of the things I don't think Jesus would do is to speak ne negatively of others. Now hear me, there is appropriate and it is needed to have friends that you can talk to when you're struggling, when you're frustrated. If you need to vent, that's fine. But not to talk negatively, to complain about your spouse to your friends, to joke like it's this terrible thing, like they're, you know, they, to, about things that you don't like about your spouse. That is to not build each other up. And Ephesians chapter 5 earlier, how we speak about others matters. I think one of the ways to have a good marriage is to vow, to promise to the best of your ability not to talk negatively about your spouse to others. 
Another thing that might be helpful is to be intentional about giving your spouse time with friends or to do the things that they want to do. Now, um, wives, generally speaking, are much better about this with their husbands than husbands are with their wives. It is much more likely for the guy to go away for the weekend or to do the things for his, with his friends or the things that he wants to do. And it, often, at least in my experience, it's much less likely that the husband is intentional about, hey, I'm going to take the kids or, hey, I'm going to clean the house or I'm going to do this and you go and have some time away. So being really intentional about giving your spouse time that, that, that is life-giving for them, I think in particular husbands, we should be in, as intentional as we can about this. Uh, on, the other, on the other side, uh, here's another thing that may be, might be helpful is to not talk about how, how other men are cute or attractive or women are cute or attractive. So uh, this is something that wives typically do more than husbands, maybe culture or whatever. Uh, men obviously can do it too, but typically you'll see wives talk about some actor or some movie star and how he's cute and attractive. And, and part of the thing is that husbands, most husbands will say, it doesn't matter to me. I don't care. Um, this is, I'll say what your husband won't say to you. When you say that, they feel like they are less than to you. Even if you say, well, I love you and I care for you. And of course it's more about looks. But when you say that your husband feels like they have failed you in some way. So again, men can do this too, but, but don't talk about how attractive someone of the opposite sex is, especially in front of, or just not at all, your spouse, because it, it hurts one another. Um, I would encourage us in this way, the, the word divorce is off the table. It's off the table. Now, we're going to talk about divorce next week. There are times, even as a pastor, there are times where divorce is appropriate and should happen. So, so hear me. But just generally speaking, throwing it around like, well, maybe we should just give up or maybe we should just give a, make a divorce. Again, the gospel is that Jesus committed himself to us, even in the hard times. Divorce is not a word that you can joke with. It's not a word that you should use. Um, here's another thing. If your spouse continues to bring up an issue that is bothering them, what are you willing to do about it? Again, doing for your spouse what God did for you and Jesus. If you hear a problem, I think Jesus would try. I mean, we're not Jesus, so it's going to be harder for us. We're going to fall and we're going to fail. But what are the things that we can do to try to take steps about that? Are you, are you or your spouse disappointed with the frequency of intimacy in your marriage? Here's the reality. Intimacy, it's different for different spouses and that sort of thing. But it is always, pretty much always, I should say always, many times a barometer of the health of your marriage. If it's being a lot, happening a lot less frequently than it used to, there's probably something going on there. Uh, maybe practically speaking, consider one small thing you could do a day to serve your spouse. What would Jesus do if he were me? Uh, do your for your spouse what God did for you and Jesus. Maybe try to find one way. What's one chore that they typically do? Or one, something that they typically do, a small way to encourage them. What is one practical way this week, as I close, maybe think of it this way. Maybe what's one practical way I can, this week I can love my spouse the way Jesus has loved me. Again, do for your spouse what God did for you and Jesus. When we do this, we reflect, even when we fail and fall short, we reflect to one another and to those around us what Jesus has done.